0: You ever ask the question, why do we come to church and sing? Um, I mean, in some sense, it's kind of a strange thing. You know, nowhere else do you do that. Like, you don't walk into the movie theater and, hey, before the movie starts, let's just all join in song, <laughs> come together. You know, you never go to um, a restaurant unless you're singing happy birthday. And just, it's just kind of an odd thing. But the reason we sing, if you've ever wondered that, is, uh, is to refocus ourselves. On what ought to be at the core of our our being and our attention, and the reason we have to do that is because we naturally get distracted. Uh, we might think we're spiritual creatures; in some sense, we are, but we don't naturally seek God. We don't naturally like focus on kind of the heavenly realm and the, and the spiritual things and where God is. And the things of this life kind of distract us, and, and this is where we're at, I mean, most of the time. And so when we come to church, we sing for two reasons. One, the words, visually seeing those words and saying those words uh, bring us back to kind of a centered truth, and then being able to do it with music and kind of that medium helps disengage us from life and to get us more focused on a more Engaged with the things that we ought to be focusing on and in communication with God. Singing is really uh, just a form of prayer. As a matter of fact, most of the psalms, if not all the psalms, were written to be sung and they were first-person kind of narratives. They're, they're prayers that were sung. And so that's kind of like why we sing. Because it doesn't matter who you are or where you're coming in, nobody really comes in with completely blue, sunny skies. We all come in with some measure of distraction and clouds in our life. And the best thing that can happen to us is just routinely to kind of get centered over here. And so when we come in, we might not be feeling it, but I worked at a Christian summer camp when I was in my 20s. And we had this uh, up in the mountains, and we had this saying, um, fake it till you feel it. And what it basically meant was you just get over the kids. I mean, you just get way over it, and you're getting like five hours of sleep a night and you wake up and you're just not feeling it and the kids are all excited and ready for you to love on them and you have to just come in and just pretend and fake it what happens is when you do that after a little while you really begin to feel it and so I'll just be honest with you singing some of it is just coming in and faking it until you feel it it's giving you an opportunity to just kind of force yourself back into that mode or that rhythm where by the time it's done Um, man, that's what you needed, was to connect with God. What you needed was to to voice a prayer that's deep inside of you. And and so, you know, we kind of get out of it what we put into it. That's what I tell Justin when we're working out and he's got the five-pound dumbbells. I'm like, Justin, dude, it's not going to do anything, man. You you only get out of it what you put into it. Um, let's, uh, Let's go ahead and pray before we get started. Father, we... We just come this morning and there's a lot of things that can happen, but the only thing that's really meaningful is, uh, is what could possibly happen between you and us. Um, the connection there, us being able to maybe hear something, sense something in our gut, just know something that sends us out of here different or excited or fired up or just sensing that you do love us unconditionally. You know us all the way, yet you still love us, and the people in our lives that love us, uh, we're always afraid that if they really knew everything, that they would take back their love, let us just be grounded in that unconditional and all-knowing love that you have for us, and I just pray that the things that really matter would happen this morning, and we especially just thank you for this, uh, this time where we're able to dedicate children to you, and just be a church family, and we pray that in Christ to John chapter Four, and we'll kind of pick up where we're at John chapter four, and it 's the same narrative that that Mike Saba and Brandon talked about last week, kind of a, a famous little uh, passage, but it's Jesus talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well and and basically they're walking north and they 're heading back home, and they're they're cutting through kind of the awkward uh, place It would be like if you're an Israeli, instead of going around this way, you're going to cut through the, the, the Gaza Strip. You're going to cut through, um, you know, the other part of Jerusalem. I think it's like sectioned off or something like that. And You're going through the part where you're not really comfortable, and you're the outsider, and they're just kind of heading straight through. And Jesus ends up talking to this woman uh, and basically showing himself that he's a prophet. Now, he knows everything about this woman's life. And what's, what's fascinating is he's ridiculously comfortable in talking to this woman. He walks right up to her, hey, how you doing? Uh, he's tired, he's been traveling all day, he's an outsider. Hey, how you doing? Starts talking to her, and, and she starts asking him these off-the-wall questions, and he stays right on her. And then towards the end, he's like, yeah, go get your husband. She's like, uh, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, that's right. You've been married, like, on again, off again, on again, off again, on again. You know, you're living with a guy, but, but yeah, go get him. And, uh... And he's, he's just ridiculously comfortable in talking to this woman in this, this just straightforward way. And I think we need to stop and recognize that because I think it's uh, important for what we're doing. We need to recognize it in the sense that if I took you out of here, majority in here are, are, have been coming to church for a little while or you're brand new coming to church or you're whatever, um, you kind of have a certain paradigm in place. And if I took you out and put you with... Uh, an illegal immigrant that speaks a different native tongue than you, that's a practicing homosexual, that voted different than you in the election, that's, that's whatever the cultural tensions are that are hot buttons for you, or may be hot buttons for you, okay? Whatever they are, just differences. And I put you right with that person. How's that conversation going to go? For I mean, think about yourself. I mean, there's something really interesting going on here because we are very uncomfortable talking to people that don't fit kind of our little box of what normal is or what comfortable is or what our language is and so we would tend to I you know I'm one of these pastors it's really interesting if you if you hang around church long enough pastors always bring up stories about how they shared Jesus with somebody on an airplane right and I I, I can't stand when I fly because I sit down and I immediately put in like my iPod headphones and I'm like don't talk to me don't talk to me don't talk to me you know and then I get this guilt like oh I'm a horrible pastor like I don't have this like story of on an airplane and I led the half the cabin to the Lord and you know and and I just it's this internal conflict right Cause it's a horrible pastor that way right I had no idea where I was going with that. Um, <laughs> it's gone. Um, anyways, uh, oh, well maybe that's what I, I you know, we don't, we, we naturally don't like to talk to people completely out of our box. You know, and, uh, and I, I know what that feels like, right? Get on an airplane this is like i've got four kids don't talk to me this is my only alone time in life right um but but we all know like just you know sometimes it's just easier to stay in your own little groove in your own little lane and just just um not deal with it that's us okay and that's important because it's going to come out here a little bit so jesus has this interaction ridiculously comfortable why because it's actually what he's about okay i mean it's 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 it's, it's meaningful to him to the degree that verse 27 I think we have it on the screen actually I might just read it that way Uh, but so here's the narrative as it continues and the disciples rejoined Jesus and says this they returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman but no one asked what do you want or why are you talking with her Um, they just kind of walked up uncomfortable and just kind of stood there let the situation do what it does and she kind of walks off and you know whatever And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ, the the Messiah, the Chosen One? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Okay, scene change. Back to Jesus and the disciples. Meanwhile, it's like a Batman TV show, right? Meanwhile, um, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, which means teacher, okay, um, teacher, eat something. We've been walking by foot. Heat of the day, probably um, Middle East kind of context. Eat something, and he said to them, "I have food to eat that you know nothing about." And then his disciples said to each other, "Could someone have brought him food?" My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to finish His work. My food, said Jesus. Do the will of him who sent me. And he goes on, do you not say four months more and then the harvest? So we're walking. It's in, uh, uh, there's a lot of agriculture and stuff like that in that context. And you can see where the crops are. And don't you say things like four months more and then we're going to come along and harvest it. And I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. And I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So what's going on here? Jesus is trying to give them a paradigm shift that says, Look, you're walking through Samaria, and you're goal-oriented, you're type A, and you're getting from here to there, that's the object, and, and along the way, you need sustenance. You need to nourish yourself for this journey. It's tough, whatever, walking. And he's saying, you went out, you got food. You're trying to sustain your journey to that. And that's, that's what you're focused on. It's where your mind's at. It's the only thing you're kind of concerned about. You're not seeing anything else. And he's saying, you know what? What sustains me, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me, to do God's will. Now, what God's will is, is saying that, hey, there's this crop ready to be harvested for eternal life. There are people here that don't know God, that don't have truth, that need someone to talk to them, that need someone to to relate and to love and to care for and to nurture. And it's everywhere. It's not when we get to where we're going or four months from now. It is now. It is urgent. It is important and that's what I came to do. That's what sustains me. That's where I want to be, doing that work. So you're coming saying, eat some food so that you can be sustained. And he's saying, you have no idea. I am satisfied already. Because I have food. I have something that fills me that you know nothing about. It's this, this conversation I just had with this woman. It's doing this work of engaging the world and engaging people that is so counterintuitive to you and most other people because you see things kind of in just this one narrow little paradigm. I think it's a fascinating, fascinating story, and I think it's fascinating for two reasons. Um, The first reason is what Jesus is doing with his disciples right then. He's using the everyday stuff of life. He says, I have food, right? They're saying, Jesus have food. And he's saying, oh, I've got food. You don't want anything about it. He's taking the, the very mundane things of what's going on right then and there to flip around and teach them about God and about who they are to be in God. He's growing them in maturity and wisdom and all this other stuff by just taking what's happening at that moment. So we're going to be... Talking about child dedication later, but here's the verse out of Deuteronomy. It's called um, the Shema, which comes from the the, the Hebrew word here here, uh, and it's at the heart of the the Hebrew scriptures and Jewish education. This is like the cornerstone of Jewish education, and what it says is, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." Jesus actually begins when he when he was asked what are the greatest commandments, and he said, "Here's the greatest commandment." He actually begins it with this, okay, and it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts Impress them on your children. Just take and like they're clay, they're children, they're supple, they're going to learn, they're impressionable. And take it and impress it on them. Mark them. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you what? Everybody say it. When you what? What is Jesus doing here? They're walking along the road, and he is taking and impressing on his disciples that what God has for you is this harvest of people that you are to go out and to reach, and he's going to give you the strength and the ability to do that, the words to say. And he's impressing that on his disciples. And it says this, when you lie down and when you get up, you do this. Tie them as a symbol on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so if you've ever seen pictures of back in this day of the little boxes on foreheads, it's a literal rendering of this where little scriptures are put in a little box on the forehead. Tie it on your forehead. And they're literally doing it. And I think that in some sense, we read this passage, uh, I think, that way. How do, I, how do I shape my life to be in compliance by what I do? Well, let me actually tie something on my forehead and let me put something on my doorpost. And I can feel that I'm being religious and spiritual. And it's kind of an easy thing to do. And then I'm, I'm there and I've kind of made it. I think we can easily get wrapped up in, you know, I go to church. It's my routine. Just like tying it on my forehead. I open my Bible, I sing uh, when we do worship, I do things that are good things to do. They're, they're religious things, they're spiritual things. What we tend to miss is what it is we're supposed to be actively, in do, uh, actively doing in shaping culture, especially um, the people we're teaching See, see, there's this relationship where we're engaging culture, doing the work, and as we're doing it, we're bringing others along and discipling them. Discipling means just raising them up, teaching them to be like you. Does that make sense? So later on, we're going to take an oath as a community to really raise up the children in this church correctly. And we're going to naturally think that what that means is we're supposed to disciple them. Um, Here's the Bible verses to memorize, here's the things to do, and here's the things not to do. And I'm even going to protect you from bad things that would hurt you or damage you. But see, it cannot work. Discipleship cannot work if we're not being the example of what it is they're supposed to grow up and be able to do. I mean, does that make sense? You get in that? Like, it's like a river, if it doesn't have an outlet, but it only has an inlet, doesn't continue on as a river, it becomes a what? Like a marsh. Something, you know, mosquitoes. I don't know. It, this discipleship process is a come and do as I do thing, but the end goal is we have to have the maturity as adults, as Christians, to be going out and shaping culture and loving on people the way God wants us to. That's, that's the work he's given us to do. It's what should sustain us. It's, it's our goal. We're not going from A to B it directionally. As we go, we begin to make disciples. So that's the last thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew is, As you go, make disciples. It's fitting because it's the last thing he says, but it's what he taught. And so, two things that are fascinating about this is what Jesus is doing, what he's modeling. And then the second thing is what he says that this is actually the food that sustains me. And um, we don't have a ton of time because of the, the dedication. And then I, I had some things I was going to say in Starbucks this morning, had another thought come into my head that it's not really clear yet. But it's much more interesting Um, so I want to try and figure out how to cash it out and then um, show a video and we're going to do the child dedication but uh, let me start with a conversation I was having a conversation with Matt Smith this week and I, I was a college pastor for a decade and he was a college pastor for a number of years and whenever you care about something that much you get together with someone else that cares about it and you begin like just brainstorming you know or talking about that subject and We were dreaming about college ministries in America, and how, you know, what what could be different? If you just wiped it all clean, like, what could be different? Because, frankly, the statistic is 80% of the high school kids that are in a church that go to a secular university by the end of their first year walk away from their faith. So we're not teaching kids to be able to engage the world. We're, we're holing them up, and Gathering them together and in some sense killing time with them to the degree that they develop no foundation or no roots. And then when that greenhouse is removed, they're just knocked right over, right? Okay, that's statistically, that's just where it's at. So Matt and I are talking about college groups and we're like, man, how can you, I mean, just where can we go with this? There's a moment where all of a sudden I said, you know what, it's really interesting. We start with college ministries. We start with demographic. This is a starting point. Let's circle around this age group and then get them together once a week or at a regular meeting time. Does that make sense? So we start with demographic. And then once, and there's a parallel here to church, but we start with demographic and then we try and motivate them to go and do or act in a certain way. So come be a part of this community which kind of gives you your fraternity, sorority, kind of your network And then we're going to try and coach them to get out of their comfort zone to actually go and do some like of what they're supposed to be as witnesses or people called to love on other people, right? And we have varying degrees of success that way. And I said to Matt, I said, maybe we've got the whole thing upside down. Maybe what we do is we start a group that only exists to reach culture, okay? Only exists, that's the whole sole purpose of it, and then, and then we go for a demographic. So here is what this group does. It gets together and does this. And then we say, oh, by the way, here's the demographic. So you have to engage culture and people and whatever, neighbors. And you have to, to try and do the work the Father gives us to do first. And then, oh, by the way, there's kind of a fellowship or a community that, that is emerging through doing that work together. Okay, does that make sense? And so instead of trying to get a group together and then motivate them to go do something, you just say, you want to do this? Come along. I think that's kind of like what Jesus said. Hey, come follow me, do what I'm doing. And then out of that comes this kind of community. So the identity of who we are precedes kind of the demographic. I think maybe that's the way we've done church in America too. That we draw a circle around it first and we say... Let's pull together a demographic. The demographic being people that are willing to come to church on a Sunday. Maybe call themselves Christians. And then we'll try various times to motivate them to either do ministry in the church, children's ministries or, or other ministries, right? Or try and motivate them to actually go out and engage Culture the people around them with varying degrees of success. And it's a losing proposition. It's a losing proposition because what we've done is we've said you're on the team just by being where the team is at. Even if you don't do anything that the team is actually about doing. So, yeah, you can be on the football team even if you have nothing to do with football. Just be localized in a circle where we're at and we'll we'll say you're part of the team and it's and it's backwards and it's kind of like what we should be saying is your identity is to be someone that is radically engaged with God to the point that your greatest satisfaction what nourishes you is going out into this world and doing the work he has for you to do right and so that's that's what it means to be on the team or the hands and feet of Christ. where the body. The body does work. The body doesn't exist to just sit on a couch. That's called gluttony. You know, gluttonous Christianity is what we've become. I mean, a body exists for function. And what we ought to be saying is come be a part of this functioning body that does this work. And oh, by the way, as you're doing this, there's a community element that comes with it that's really, that's really great. There's relationships you have, and people help you out, and people care, and all these other things, but we exist for this first. Are you willing to step up to that? It's a high bar. It's like Jesus saying, "Um, come and follow me. Uh, There's only one thing I'm going to be about, I'll be honest with you right now, but you're more than welcome to come and be a part of what I'm doing. So we've got this thing kind of of mixed up, and... um, so here's the part where it's just not figured out. So bear with me. Um, I think we're screwing our kids up. I, I honestly do. I, I think we're not being smart about these things. Why? Um, because the way we are is we, we when we're uncomfortable... We work towards comfort, and then once we find comfort, then we disengage and relax. Does, does that make sense? When something's awkward, we try and resolve the awkwardness, find a place where it's comfort, and then we kind of step back and check out, okay? So here's what I think is happening. The culture of Christianity, that, that, this backwards one I'm talking about, where just drawing a circle here, and this is really all Christianity is or church is, right? we work towards a position of comfort by, by syncing up with other people. We, we kind of try and f- find our place until all of a sudden it's like, okay, we're all kind of in agreement here, that's comfortable, so now I can step back and, and, and it's, it all works. We're all kind of comfortable. Now, what's wrong with that is Jesus is saying, you ought to work towards reconciling your discomfort by moving towards God. And when you and God begin to sync up, then you know you're, you're in the right spot and you can be comfortable, even if you're completely out of step with all the other people around. So we go left when we should go right, is, is what I really think the big issue is. So Jesus is saying, um, I'm... I'm connected with God and what he wants me to do. You come and follow me. Not the majority of Jews would ignore Samaritans. So as long as I'm not being worse than them and kind of finding comfort in in doing what they're doing, then I'm okay. And I mean well and I'm a good person and we kind of move on that way. So here's the fascinating thing about scripture to me. It promises that the presence of God will go with you Conditionally. Conditionally. And in most churches I've been at, it's promised unconditionally. So here's what I mean by that. Jesus, when he said, go and make disciples, he just said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority is mine. Go and do this. And if you do this, you don't have to be afraid. Why? Because I will be with you always. Now it sounds like this this really neat thing that Jesus is saying, but what he's doing is a formula that's that's all the way through Scripture, starting in the Old Testament, and works itself on. And what God does is he comes up to a Moses and says, Moses, you go do this. And don't be afraid of what's going to happen to you, because I will go with you. Joshua, beginning of Joshua, be strong and courageous. Go take these people, do this, and don't you be afraid, because I will go with you. And it shows up in a bunch of other places. God comes to someone and says, Man, this is what I want you to do. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult. Don't be afraid because I will be with you. Then Jesus comes and, sa- and says, All authority is mine. I can speak authoritatively. So you go do this and I will be with you. You see, the presence of God that we so desperately want or crave, how come God isn't working in my life? I just want to sense that I'm with him and that he's helping me. It comes in doing this, saying, he has work for me to make disciples. The harvest is ripe. As I do that, I don't have to be afraid of the awkwardness because he will be with me. I'll have strength. I'll have the power. I won't have to back down. And so what's fascinating here... I'm This week I had an interesting thought coming to my head. I've got two books I'm reading totally disconnected. um, But one's about all the death in the Civil War. 600,000 people dying during the Civil War. And the other one's about um, the the marketplace and its effects. The marketplace revolution. So how consumer politics shaped um, the American Revolution. Totally disconnected books, right? But here's the interesting thing about the two. I mean, just think about this. We think... Man, if I had lived back then, I would have boarded those ships and thrown the tea overboard. You know, the Boston Tea Party. I would have done it because it was heroic and it was the right thing to do, right? And you know what? Lincoln, it, we revere him. Like, he grades out as the best president ever. And you know what? I would have been like Lincoln. Well, Lincoln was, in his time, I mean, all 600,000 people dying because of his war. 600,000 people. Moms and dads and brothers and sisters and kids looking at him and saying, "You have ruined my life, Lincoln. I hate you." And the Boston Tea Party; those guys originally were looked at as thugs. I mean, they're breaking rules and dressing up in costumes and going in in the middle of the night, and and so we look back at it and it's heroic. During the time, it was it was incredibly difficult. To walk either of those roads. Does that make sense? Okay. We do the same thing with Hitler and Nazi Germany. If I was there. It's really easy to say. Right. So we do this with this scripture passage too. You know what. If I was with Jesus. If I was there. I would have valued that Samaritan woman. I would have been there with Jesus. Sharing all this cool stuff that was going on with her. And we isolate ourselves and we delude ourselves into thinking that that's actually how we would act. And the truth of the matter is, is all I have to do is get into your life or my life and follow you around for a couple weeks and see if that's really the case. Because you know what? The Samaritan woman lives right next to you. She works with you. She's the woman who cut you off on the road. She's the doctor that gave you the wrong diagnosis. might cost you your life. It's it's the person that's been spreading things about you falsely. It's the school you go to that is radically secular. The industry you're in that is all atheistic. It's the, the family that you're a part of that when they get together all make fun of you. What we've done... As we've traded the possibility of the power of God working through us for a completely wrong-headed religious agenda that says protect our borders at all cost because if demographic is our starting point and community is our starting point any threat to that community is a what is a danger or it's an enemy. And so now we have to protect that community. So the Samaritan woman or the atheist or the whoever it is, instead of being something that you're someone or, a, or whatever that you're supposed to go out and love and talk to normally, like Jesus talked normally to this other person, instead of that being the dominant thing in your mind, you back up and say, how do we guard against that poison coming into this system. So we raise our kids by sheltering them and trying to guard them at every stage all the way up through high school. And then we we give them some books and an allowance and send them off to college. And guess what? It It was the wrong strategy. It was the wrong strategy. Instead, we should have grabbed our kids back here we should have figured out that the most important thing that's going to happen in them growing up and really getting this whole thing, the most important thing is what we do first and what we teach second. And we, as a church, better really start owning kind of this whole thing that God has us here for, to be witnesses. And then we pass that on. And what begins to be passed on is, is we take these kids at junior high and high school and we we point out to the world and say you know what Um, God's got some work for you out there whether you're a dentist, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a stay at home mom whether you go over to Africa and work there God has work for you to go out into the world and to transform it, to be salt, to be light to be love, to be the representation of God. That's the incarnation, the the church and the Christians. We are the body of Christ. We're we're the incarnation. So we take them, we say, God's got something for you to do. Um, It's a pretty big job. It's a pretty difficult thing. But here's, here's the best part. It's the part that made the difference to me, which gave me the ability to do this, which is what I'm wanting you to follow. Here's the best part. If you go, he will be with you. It is the power of God working through us that transforms culture in front of us. When we try to reach it, it's not the persuasiveness of our words. It's not how... How smart we are, it's, it's, we're smart just to trust God. That's like our bar. Where we're smart about these things is saying, God's a big God, he said do this. You know what, that's probably a better idea than to not do this. So here's, here's an example. David and Daniel. Let's just take David. David's not yet full grown man, can't fight with the nation of Israel. He comes out, here's all the Israelite soldiers, and there's a guy defying them. And all of the Israelite soldiers are doing what? How do we guard and protect our safety? Because if we engage this secular world, what happens if we lose? What happens if I get hurt? What happens if I don't win? And so they're all sitting there trying to guard and protect this demographic circle, the Israelites. And David comes up, and David's a boy. David gets this. And he says, hey, how, how come nobody's going and, 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 and dealing with this? How come nobody is trusting that our God is big enough to help in dealing with this? How come nobody is going, man, if with God on my side, I, I can just run forward and trust that I've got all that I need to be able to make an impact for God because that's what God's called us to. David asked, How come nobody is being obedient? How come nobody is really being an Israelite? True to their name. I think David, if he was here, would look at us, and and again, you know, if we were back then, we would be Lincoln. And if we were back then, we would have been the Boston Tea Party. And if we were back then, we would have been David. Yeah, sure. No, we wouldn't have. But we need to try to be more like David. And David, if he was here, would look at us and he would say, look, how come we're not being more obedient? How come we're not really being true to our name and not just circling up and, and being Christians in this community and then trying to strategically figure out how to guard ourselves but actually running headlong into all the difficult places in this world and in this community, believing that God can use us to make a difference and that we're, he's going to protect us from whatever junk there is. And David would say, why in your little world, with the challenges and the scary stuff, are you not recognizing that you have a big enough God? big enough God that will go with you into those difficult places to accomplish his work. Why do we not experience God more in our lives? Because we're over here um, going, I just want to experience it so that I can be happier and more fulfilled. Instead of over here laboring and wearing ourselves out like Paul said, I'm being poured out like a drink offering, like my, my very energy is like sapped from my body, I'm drained, physically drained and exhausted. I'm pouring myself out doing this work of God. But when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because as I do what God has called me to do, God has said he will be with me. So maybe as a church, we need to realize that it is first what we do, and then out of that comes this community of people working together. And when we go to dedicate dedicate kids this morning, okay, Deuteronomy 6. If we're not out going through life on the road, engaging things the way God would have us engage, maturity and wisdom and intentionality, then we can't take our kids and say, hey kids, look, this is how it's done. This is how you grow your faith in God, by actually doing something and then seeing that he meets you there and delivers. And the next time it's all the more easy. And so we, as we dedicate these kids, have this responsibility to first raise our hands and say, you know what, I'm willing to try and, to try and trust God that if I just say yes, like David or Daniel or Jesus' disciples, yeah, I'll, I'll go. <laughs> I'm scared that God will meet us. And as he does, we become the teachers of the next generation. Um, We're messing up our kids. And it starts with us living out what it means to be a Christian. First, being obedient. Actually trusting God. Realizing that Christianity wasn't made for us, that while we walk north through Samaria, we get to, to feel good about ourselves. There's a whole paradigm shift where we die to ourselves every day look to God and say, God, what would you have for me today? I want to be found where you're at and I care about these people, every single one of them. Please use me to do what you would have in my life. Um, I want to show a video real quick and we might run a little long today because of the dedication, but um, here's, here's the, the idea of the video and then the parents are going to come up and line up on stage. Um, the idea of the video is that the next generation um, is lined up in the hallways on both sides of this. They're in rooms. They're doing kids' ministries. The next generation of Christians is already here, and they're growing bit by bit either in a good way because we're, we're modeling right or in a bad way because we're insulating them and, and passing on a bad idea of what Christianity is. The next generation is now. Now. 10 years from now, it's not us impacting culture. It's whether these kids that we're raising right now have been raised up to be the kind of Christians that will impact culture. And we gotta get that in our minds so that we can see the potential, the harvest. Even in this building right now with these kids, the harvest is right for us to be able to go and make disciples as well as outside of these walls in our relationships and things like that. So here's a video uh, of our kids' ministry.
1: When I grow up, I want to be a football player. When I grow up, I want to be a fireman. I want to be just like Kip Jones. When I grow up, I want to be a skydiver. When I grow up, I want to be a dancer. When I grow up, I want to be the president. When I grow up, I want to be a photographer. When I grow up, I want to be a football player. When I grow up, I want to be in the army. When I grow up, I want to be a veterinarian. In 572 weeks, I could be heading off to college. In 13 years, I could vote. In 9 years, I can get my driver's license. In 13 years, I can vote. In 9 years, I can choose to fight for this country. In 468 weeks, I could be heading off to college. In 10 years, I can vote. In 416 weeks, I can get my driver's license. In 670 weeks, I could be heading off to college. In 10 years, I'm going to be on the road. You You have 936 weeks. You have 936 weeks. You have 936 weeks. I'm the next generation. I'm the next generation. I am 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 the next generation. I, I am the next generation. 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 We are